You Have Not Trashed 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 14, Have You Met Dinosaurus? Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this week's episode is from Chaos Theory, who is the new Shaper Runner introduced in the third data pack, Cyber Exodus. And so that's what we're doing. That's the big part of this week's episode is introducing the runner side of Cyber Exodus. And we'll go through the changes that the Reboot Project has made to those cards. Uh, Not all of them, but some of them. And the other big part of this episode is part two of Ice Placement. And it looks like this is going to be at least a three-parter and might be bleeding into a fourth part. Uh, Again, trying to keep the episodes to under an hour. Anonymous tip. Here I'm going to bring in a couple of fact responses about ice. They must have been frequently asked or they wouldn't have been answered in the fact, right? So one of them, here's the question. When a piece of ice allows the runner to break subroutines on it by spending clicks, does the runner have to match the strength of the ice before using this ability? The answer is no. The runner does not have strength. Only ice breakers have strength, and an ice breaker must match the strength of a piece of ice to interact with it. This ability allows the runner to break subroutines by spending clicks without using any ice breakers. And that seems like an obvious thing, but the anonymous tip is hopefully meant to uh, try to find those uh, obvious things and bring them to light. I do remember when I first started playing that that's a question that I had. So I think it's, it's not a crazy question. The other fat question about ice, our frequently asked question, it's not an ATM machine. The rules state that the runner cannot jack out while approaching the first piece of ice during a run. Can the runner jack out after the subroutine on cell portal resolves and he or she is approaching the outermost piece of ice protecting the server. So Cell Portal is the card in the core set, the code gate. The subroutine says that, if it fires, that you have to go and approach the outermost piece of ice again. So basically you have to run through the server again as if you are just starting. And what everybody wants to be true, or wanted to be true, was that you had to keep going. But of course the answer is you don't. So the question was, can the runner jack out? The answer is yes. The first piece of ice refers to the first time a piece of ice is approached during a run, and not the ice itself. So the runner approaches the ice and has the opportunity to jack out. So in a way, the way they could think about the cell portal is you approach ice one, let's say it's toll booth, and then you come to ice two, let's say it's enigma, and then ice three, let's say it's cell portal. It's a bad server probably, but if the cell portal goes off, and in practical terms, basically now toll booth is the fourth piece of ice, right? It's as if you are, these other pieces of ice are right there having to be encountered again. And if it was any fourth piece of ice, you can jack out before you encounter the ice. So that's true here as well. This question does become a little bit relevant as we go into the runner cards for Cyber Exodus later in the episode. Archived Memories, Ice Placement, Part 2. Just as a recap from Episode 12, I've always thought of ice as one of three types. Barrier, Codegate, Sentry. Obviously that's true. But there's another axis or another lens through which you can sort ice or look at ice. End-the-run ice, 
and taxing ice. Right? The, the purpose is not to end the run. The purpose is to tax the runner. In episode 12, we went through a blog post from David Sutcliffe from his excellent blog, The Satellite Uplink, that then subdivided these into two additional kinds, binary and analog. So you have binary end the run, analog end the run, binary taxing, analog taxing. And here, binary ice can be turned on and off by icebreakers for a minimal cost, which is defined by David in the blog post as up to two credits, maybe three, but definitely not four. So a perfect example is uh, ice wall, right? Ice wall ends the run. It's binary though, because if you have a almost any decent fractor, it's going to cost you just one credit to get through it. So you turn that right off. So those are important concepts. Uh, we're going to keep those in mind as we look at the blog post from the big boy. He has a blog called Run the Net, or Run the Nets, Run the Net, um, which he started several years ago. Still some excellent stuff on there. I'm pulling a post from October of 2015 here called Two Tips for Improving Your Court Play. And I'm just going to talk about tip two because it's the one that's about ice. So if you want to take a look at tip one, go right ahead. It's a good article. I asked him on Discord, or I was talking about it on Discord on the 2.1 channel, and um, was thing I was mentioning that I was going to include this article. And he said, I think the idea still holds. The exact number is just different. Here, the, the name of the tip two is 17 ice is a crutch. He says, like, 17 and reboot is fine. So I guess when you read that article, just change 17 to 19 in your head. He also added, oh, also, everyone was NEH back then, which draws lots of extra cards, so you didn't need as much ice. NEH is an NBN identity, near-Earth hub. It comes along, it must be in the lunar cycle, based on the name. And then in responding to a comment from Muryu, he says, yeah, 18 for a glacier deck is okay because they only have nine agendas, so they got extra slots. So he's saying, don't use more than 17. 18's okay in a glacier deck. 19 is too many. It's just always interesting, the, the difference that one makes. So as I go through this article, if I mention 19 ice, the article actually reads 17. One of the most difficult things for intermediate court players to learn is ice placement. They do not plan for the long term when they install their ice, only thinking about its immediate impact and not its lasting effect. For an extreme example, I recently played against a near-earth hub deck as Andromeda. I had Desperado installed, and so was likely to check most remotes. He installed a new remote and iced it. I checked the remote and slammed into an architect. I'm not going to bother, you know, what, what type of deck it is doesn't really matter. Who his runner is doesn't really matter. The architect is a little bit relevant. Architect is actually a card designed by a Jeremy Zwern, the 2012 World's Champion. And it's a century that has two subroutines. Uh, the first subroutine is the corp gets to look at the top five cards of R&D and then install a, one of them for free. And then the second subroutine is that he can install, the corp can install a card from archives or HQ. Okay, so continuing. Having no cards in archives so far, he got his half value architect, plus one click for the HQ install, and I accessed to find a pad campaign. He res the pad and let it sit behind that architect for the entire game. A few medium runs through his lightly defended R&D with no mimic out probably had him wishing his architect was protecting something more important. I'm sure my opponent didn't really think that a pad campaign is worth defending with a four-cost piece of ice, but he knew that if he put the architect there that I would probably hit it without a mimic out. He was so focused on getting his subroutines to fire that he did not think about how he wanted his ice to be arranged several turns down the line. 
So, what does all this have to do with having 19 ice? Intermediate court players get trapped in a spiral of poor ice placement. They put their ice in the wrong places at the wrong times, conclude after they lose that they never have the ice they need, and add more ice to their deck. With all that extra ice, they feel compelled to install more of it. This costs a lot of money and slows down the game, allowing their opponents to reach late game more often where their poor ice placement haunts them even more. Decks like this one make my head hurt. And here he posts a deck. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. It's got a lot of cards that are from later in the card pool. But one of the things that it does have is uh, 17 pieces of ice. So again, in the context of the game as it was in 2015, he's saying 17 is too many. He's saying in reboot, 17 is okay. 19 would be too many. If you play with this list locally or on Octagon, the precursor to Jinteki.net, you will probably win a lot. You will also learn very, very little. You will coast to victory on the power of your core strategy, never realizing that many of the games you lose are due to your poor ice placement. This is because this list has way more ice than is actually needed for its strategy to function. In this case, way more because it's near-Earth hub. It's all about um, creating new servers. And so if you pull out, if you, have, you, have, you don't need so much ice. That was the point he made in his comment in the Discord server. Netrunner has a ton of extremely powerful corp cards that often do not make the cut or are one-ofs instead of two or three-ofs because ice takes up so many deck slots. Every piece of ice you can cut because of your placement and timing skills is one more luxury card you can run. These utility cards can be totally game-changing and make for a much more dynamic, decision-laden learning experience. Strong ice placement is difficult to break down in explicit terms. While writing this, I played several games and took notes on my thoughts while placing my ice. I've summarized my thoughts here. When you build your deck, think of the ideal place for each piece of ice that's in it. This can be matchup dependent if you're a more advanced and meta-savvy player. When you play the game, don't get caught up in perceived immediate runner threats. Stick to your plan. Be consistent in your placement. If you improvise too much, you will learn little about what is correct. If you stick to your plan over the course of several games, you may find yourself losing to the same tactics repeatedly. This is a great way to learn the weaknesses of your deck's plan and adjust it accordingly. When both are unrezzed, a taxing or punishing piece of ice in front of a binary piece is better than the other way around, since the runner will be forced to pay a price just to be gear-checked on the other side. For example, Architect into Wraparound is better than Wraparound into Architect. So I've mentioned already what Architect is. It's a taxing piece of ice because it's something that's going to cost the runner every time it, to run through it, and they are going to want to pay it because they don't want those subroutines to fire, although they can go through it. Whereas Wraparound is definitely a binary piece of end-the-run ice. It is a barrier with a strength of zero unless there's no installed fractor and then it has a strength of seven and just has one subroutine and the run. So it's effective at keeping people out even if they're using some AI breaker because then strength seven. So what he's saying here is don't gear check them. In other words, don't get that binary and the run ice out in front because then they don't have to ever pay the tax behind it. Make them pay the tax first and then get stopped. That's the sequencing of the ice placement. 
Continuing, this is an important point. Since many people snap install their opening hand architect on R&D, when you do this, you give up optimal placement later in the game. If your opponent installs a mimic and runs a few turns later, you will be glad to have them pay two credits to get stopped rather than not having to face the architect until they get all the way through and the two credits matter much less. So again, this is referring to the architect wraparound or think of it as architect into ice wall. The idea is you'd rather them have to pay to get stopped rather than get stopped and not have to pay. Don't be a slave to this tip, but whenever you install a piece of taxing ice, ask yourself how likely you will be to have to reinforce it with a binary later. If the likelihood is high, perhaps it is best to install the binary now, even if you do not plan to res it. If you have the patience, time, and safety to do so, destroyers like Roto Turret, Archer, and a central server Ichi 1.0 are most effective as the bottom piece of ice on a server. The risk involved in placing this way is that you may not be able to res these ice for value for a very long time, and if you continue to hold out on resing even when rich, the runner will start to get suspicious. When you make this play, you are going for a blowout moment later in the game. Knowing when to go for this play and when to save your destroyer to cap off a server later takes a lot of practice. Try making the play as often as you can to learn when it is correct to do so. Very few people expect an archer at the bottom of a remote server. They will assume that you would not install one until after they played at least one program. Punish their assumptions. It is also an important point that playing this way is more fun. Getting blowout moments feels great, and maintaining positive morale and having a good time are very important parts of learning. Wrecking someone with an archer or ichi is a great way to keep up your motivation to keep practicing. Practice playing decks that rely on ice, but have very little of it. One of my favorites is the Waldemar HB deck that scores mandatory upgrades the long way in a double upgrade remote powered by massive asset economy. And here, uh, there's a deck list that he links to. But, and I, I'm going to try to tweak it, see how, uh, we're going to see. We're going to see if I can tweak it to fit into the limited card pool that we currently have. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's possible. We'll see. But, um, but you can take a look at it. It's linked in the article. This deck plays for a very long game, but since it has to fit in a ton of horizontal game, that's multiple servers, and upgrades, it has only 15 pieces of ice. It can get away with this because each piece of ice is high strength and very impactful on its own. However, if you do not place it correctly, your mistakes will glare at you for the rest of the game as you do not have extra pieces of ice to just toss around on a whim. I have probably learned more about playing Corp well from this deck than any other. Also, scoring man-ups is super fun, which, again, helps keep you positive and in a learning mindset. If you only play decks with an abundance of ice, you will rarely notice your ice placement mistakes. Play some decks where every piece is precious, and you will learn quickly through your losses. Remember, I am not saying that a 19 ice deck cannot be strong. I am just saying that it is not very instructive to play. Satellite Uplink Cyber Exodus For the Runner Cyber Exodus was released February 14, 2013, about five months after the core set. 
And one of the comments from the release article said, quote, The game's seven factions gain the means to focus their tactics more tightly or experiment with all new paths to victory, unquote. That doesn't really mean much. Uh, for the runners, the way the distribution is four Shaper cards, three Criminal, two Anarch, and one Neutral, which is ten runner cards. That's exactly half of the pack, which is the most for the runners we've seen yet. What Lies Ahead had nine. Trace Amount only had eight. Meanwhile, for the Corpse, there are two of each faction and two Neutral cards. Of the 20 cards in the pack, 10 of them have been adjusted in some way for reboot. Six of the runner cards, four of the corp cards, and of those six runner cards, none of them are nerfs. They're all buffs. Let's look at those first. Starting with uh, one of the Anarch cards, Nerve Agent. It's a program whose install cost has been lowered from three to two. And it's basically medium, but for HQ. The more times you run, more cards you can access from HQ. A criminal gets Muresh Bodysuit, which is a hardware with an install cost of one. The first time each turn you would take meat damage, prevent two meat damage instead of one. I mean, it previously was one. Shaper, uh, three of the cards of the four Shaper cards get buffs here. The Identity, Chaos Theory, Wunderkind, a 40-15 deck goes from having its sole ability being plus one memory unit to plus two memory units. Dinosaurus, the console for Chaos Theory, has its install cost lowered from five to three. It can host one non-AI icebreaker, and that doesn't count against your memory limit, and it gives that icebreaker plus two strength. The artwork for both Chaos Theory and Dinosaurus comes from Matt Zeilinger, a previous subject of The Maker's Eye. And Test Run, an event, costs two instead of three. It lets you search your stack or heap for a program, install it at no cost, but at the end of the turn puts the program back on top of your stack. And the neutral card, Public Sympathy, goes from a cost of 2 to 0. It's a resource that gives you plus 2 to your maximum hand size. And the flavor text from Kate uh, Mac McCaffrey says, I'm just thankful that the brain damage is reversible. With the support of the city of New Angeles, I hope to be on my feet and back to practicing my art very soon. And then four of the cards are not changed. The remaining Anarch card, Joshua B., a unique resource uh, with an install cost of one, you may gain click, but if you do so, you take a tag at the end of your turn. Criminal's Emergency Shutdown, an event with a cost of zero, you can play only if you made a successful run on HQ and you derez an ice. I'm not sure how you would make that stronger if you needed to. The art here is from Adam S. Doyle, another previous focus of the Maker's Eye segment. Criminal's other card, Snitch, is a program with an install cost of three. Once per run, you may expose an unrezzed piece of ice when you approach it, then jack out. And Shaper's other card, the very complicated Personal Workshop, a resource that costs one and has four influence. Here is all the stuff you can do with this card. For a click, you can host a program or piece of hardware on the on Personal Workshop. You put power counters on it equal to the install cost of the card. For one credit, you can remove a power counter from that card. When your turn begins, you get to remove a power counter from one of the cards it's hosted. And if there are none left on a card, it gets installed at no cost. Matrix Analyzer. Let's take a look at some of these changes for the runner side of Cyber Exodus. A nerve Agent is one thing that was changed. It's gone from cost 3 to cost 2. And so maybe the idea here originally was they do the same thing, 
They cost, well, they cost the same. That makes sense. But in actuality, multi-access for HQ is just not as valuable as multi-access for R&D. So one less cost. Muresh bodysuit, preventing the first, well, now two, meat damage. It's similar to Netshield in the core set in that it prevents the first damage each turn. Netshield prevents the first net damage each turn if you pay a credit. Mirish Bodysuit prevents the first meat damage. Neither card ever saw very much play, uh, but probably Mirish saw less, because the main threat of meat damage, net damage, it can ping away at you. Um, think about playing Corset Jinteki. They score an agenda, you get one net damage that turn. Well, Net Shield can prevent that if you don't want to lose your cards. But the main threat of meat damage is more Scorched Earth. Uh, either way, two Scorched is still going to kill you. Uh, but one Scorched is not going to be as dangerous for you. And plus, Plaskreek Carapace exists. You know, it, it can blank one entire Scorched Earth. So there's no reason for Murash to be as weak as it is. It's been made a little bit stronger. Public Sympathy is another card that's similar. It's actually more of a way to combat brain damage. It doesn't prevent it, um, and I think that's fair, because brain damage is the most damaging one. But it lets you cope with it, right? Because on the one hand, you think, well, oh yeah, plus two brain, t- plus two uh, hand size. Now I can have seven cards. But another way to think of it, and the fact, the flavor is what's suggesting this. It shows her there with her her head bandaged up. Well, if you have two brain damage and you play this card, now it's like you have a normal hand. I also like the flavor change of having it cost zero instead of two. At two, it really wasn't getting played. But just flavor-wise, why, why would it cost you two credits to gain public sympathy? Seems like the kind of thing that comes free with media exposure. A dinosaurus being reduced from five to three, that continues the theme we've seen in Reboot, where hardware and especially consoles are cheaper. And as I read through uh, and listen to different podcasts and read through different articles, I, I re- continue to come across comments of how hardware is a subtype that was never really very effective. It was hard to get right. Um, I was listening to a podcast from when Nisei first started. Now, null signal. And that was one of the observations that was made by the team there, too. You know, hardware never seemed really relevant. And so one way for to address that, and that's the way Reboot has addressed it, is by reducing the cost of a lot of these. Toolbox has been reduced from 9 to 7, so reducing Dinosaurus from 5 to 3 is right in step with that, right? They're both being reduced by 2. Although taking a 2-cost reduction off of 9 is only 22%, and taking a 2-cost reduction off of 5 is a 40% reduction. But still, making these more playable. Now we can have Yogasaurus and other impressive osauruses from tacking uh, icebreakers onto dinosaurs. I was surprised that snitch was not changed um, because it's an expose effect. It costs three to have this expose effect. And I've already talked about how unimportant expose is generally considered to be. Uh, remember my, the comment from last week about just face-checking being more useful. So really, I guess the part about this program that's useful is the fact that you can jack out after you expose the card, which means this is sort of a little rule breaker to what we talked about in the facts section, the anonymous tip section, where normally as you approach the first piece of ice, protecting a server, the first time you approach it, you can't jack out. You have to encounter it. But here, as you're approaching, you can expose it, and then you can jack out. So it's a way for you to make a more cautious run, and there's no limit. It's not an event. Once you get it installed, you can do that anytime. So very, very useful normally. And, and of course, that's true for every ice you approach. Normally, as you approach an ice, you don't have a choice once it's rezzed to be able to jack out. But here, you do. And now, chaos theory I couldn't quite wrap my head around what was going on here. 
So I actually reached out to the big boy and said, though there are no runner nerfs in Cyber Exodus, I was curious about, because I usually ask him, you know, why the nerf? I was curious about why Chaos Theory gets an extra MU. I sort of always thought that Chaos Theory was one of the better shapers, just from the 40 deck size. And with the extra MU, she can run Magnum Opus. But the fact that none of the pre-constructed decks use her suggests that's not true. I presume that part of the buff is because Anarchs are the strongest faction, so everybody else needs help, but the specific buff of an extra MU makes me think there's a particular rig that she wants to run. And the big boy responded this way. CT was never very good, mainly because Mopus wasn't that good. Extra MU lets her run the nerfed Desperado, lets her use Battering Ram more easily, helps her use Hyperdriver. The extra MU isn't for anything specific. It's just the most logical way to make her stronger. It was an okay card, but the deck never really broke through. This is big picture, mind you. In the very limited card pool, it's better. So probably where you are now, the Chaos Theory buff seems unnecessary, but she'll need the help later as corpse improve. Meanwhile, I was trying to process Mopus wasn't that good. It means Magnum Opus. Magnum Opus isn't that good? Huh. I have to reevaluate everything. Mandatory Upgrades Personal Workshop Let's talk about how Personal Workshop works. So on its face, the way Personal work Workshop functions is as a way to install expensive cards, especially. That's the way I've, I've always taken it. By paying time instead of paying money. So, and that's definitely one way that it works. Now, it should be noted that it's, you're not limited to how many cards can be hosted on it. But the real power in Personal Workshop, that is powerful. That's pretty good on its own. But the real power is that ability that says, for one credit, remove one power counter from a hosted card. That is a paid ability. Now, when might this be particularly useful? Well, imagine the situation when you are on a run. You initiate the run. You approach the ice. The ice is rezzed. You encounter the ice. In step 3.1 of the timing structure for a run, the runner can interact with the encountered ice and a window for paid abilities. Now, the paid abilities that we're accustomed to thinking of are on icebreakers at this point, right? Here's where you break subroutines on ice. Of course, here's where you boost the strength for your icebreaker before doing that. But... That window for paid abilities is not limited to only icebreakers. And here, on Personal Workshop, is a paid ability. So what can you do with this information? Well, one thing you can do is have, for example, your icebreakers hosted on Personal Workshop. And so then you run, and you don't have any icebreakers installed. But when they res the ice, you see what ice it is, and you use credits to pay to remove power counters from the hosted card on Personal Workshop. When it reaches zero, bam, it gets installed. So maybe you've already ticked it down one or two turns, in which case it's a little bit cheaper to install. But otherwise, you're effectively installing an icebreaker at what we can call instant speed because it happens without having to pay a click. It happens in the moment during the paid ability window. And that is extremely powerful. In fact, it was so powerful, it led to an entire new archetype. I thought about including this in the archetypes segment, but since I haven't yet gotten that off the ground, I'm just going to include it here. The archetype became known as Noise Shop. Noise Shop. Because it used Personal Workshop and Aesop's Pawn Shop. Now, that's a little tougher to do in Reboot. Because Noise doesn't have enough influence to run 
all the copies of everything that he would want to. But you can still squeeze in two personal workshop and one Aesop's Pawn Shop for your 10 influence. So you, it's still conceivable to run this, even though in the original version, you'd probably have run all three personal workshop and still had an influence left over. So I found a thread on Reddit from April of 2014, of course, as usual, be linked in the show notes, where the way to play this archetype is discussed. E1337Pete, I guess that would be Elite Pete, said this. The general idea is to play wild side, to draw millions of cards, throw all your viruses on personal workshop, and then bring them in for Mill's with Noises ability. In this case, Mill is, I believe, based on a Magic the Gathering card that basically forces the Corp discard. So Noises ability to force the Corp to trash the top card of R&D every time a virus is installed is known as Milling. Aesop's Pawn Shop is there to kill off Wild Side when you don't need the draw anymore. Most people would use Stimhack to make a glory run on archives and bring in tons of viruses at once. This is why most people say Jackson Howard killed Noise Shop as he can prevent agendas from dying after seeing all discarded cards. Jackson Howard is a critical card that doesn't show up until the first pack of the second cycle. Noise Shop is also easily countered by breaking news as well as easier tag methods like C-Source. The correct way to play Noise Shop is more difficult. It uses selective runs and virus installs at opportune moments. It takes a bit of practice to get used to. User Triiral, T-R-E-I-R-A-L, said, You're missing in the description that Aesop gives you three credits at the start of the turn for trashing some card basically paying this way the next virus this turn. The economic boost of it was huge because since noise wasn't making runs, most viruses were useless once installed. User Lulian, Lulian, I can't pronounce this name, L-L-U-L-U-I-E-N. There's another thing this deck allows you to do that I think was and still is often overlooked. It enables the corresponding equivalent in Netrunner to ring control in martial arts or zoning in strategy or MOBA games. You force your opponent into picking one of several bad choices with the ability to capitalize on any of them. If you have two or three of these installed on Personal Workshop at the start of your turn, Medium, Nerve Agent, several additional small viruses you can afford to install, and the Corp doesn't have sufficient resources to defend R&D, HQ, and Archives, then you have a significant advantage on him. You don't have to spend your resources until he makes a decision about his. Whichever one you run first, the Corp has to make a decision about whether or not he'll commit to stopping you. If he does, now you simply let the run end and don't let fly the missiles on that server, start the next run on a different server and unload them there instead. If he doesn't, then not only did you presumably get an easy run on whatever server you targeted, with the option for multi-access, should you pay off the attack vector on Personal Workshop, you probably also have information about either vulnerability in one of the other two servers, or financing plans, for the corpse next one to two turns since the corp declined to spend his credits defending. Being able to constantly threaten the weakest server after the corporation has made a commitment of his resources, but before you have spent your resources is an extremely powerful tool if you are cognizant about how you can take advantage of it. Anyone who ran this deck exclusively for its capability to threaten a win by making one glory run on archives was never taking advantage of all of its benefits. And then one final comment from user Zorba. The other use of Noise Shop is to load up parasites and drop them on freshly resed ice, then kill that ice with data suckers or worm. Never break a subroutine. Just kill the ice and keep running. So there are some ideas for how you can use this brand new shaper card 
in Anarch. Enigma. Taking a look at the flavor text and various other fluff on cards that we see, this time I'd like to talk about Andromeda. Andromeda does not exist in the game, as at this point in the 2.1 card pool, we're only into the third data pack of the first cycle. Andromeda shows up as the criminal identity in the fifth data pack. But we see here two, and maybe three, references to Andromeda on the cards in this pack. The flavor text for Emergency Shutdown, it's Andromeda who says, Think of it as a virtual shock collar for punishing corporate pets. And on Snitch, again it's Andromeda with the flavor text, A snitch is a girl's best friend. And maybe, maybe the third one, Murash Bodysuit. I was looking at, so what you see here is the person, we don't see the face, we just see that it's a woman who's wearing some kind of red outfit that's been shredded, but beneath it is the Murash bodysuit, right? It's, uh, it's almost like a second skin sort of armor, like a, well, like a bodysuit. It's right there in the name. And it, it sure looks similar to Andromeda. I mean, it's not exactly the same outfit that we see on her artwork, because that one, it has a lower collar where you would have seen the bodysuit underneath it. But it's, a, it's, it's not exactly the same color of red, but it does look like it's a red dress of some kind. Or maybe those are gloves or sleeves on her arms. Uh, she's got a gun in her right hand. So, I don't know, is that, that blue thing atop it? The choker that's on her identity card? Maybe I'm reading too much into it. That's why I say maybe. Maybe there's a third reference. But it's always interesting to me when they have these little um, Easter eggs little foreshadowing hints of cards that are yet to show up. Like in the last pack, we saw Big Brother, and the picture on Big Brother was Chaos Theory holding Dinosaurus, which did not show up until this pack. E3 Feedback Implants so here is some feedback. Last time, I quoted Muryu saying, If you want to find out what an ice is, use the best icebreaker in the game on it. Your face. Now, after I posted this episode, and uh, she requested a transcript, I posted just the screen capture I had of her making that comment. And her immediate response to it was this. The second best icebreaker in the game is Parasite. Could be that Muryu is an anarch. Why would she say, though, that Parasite is a good icebreaker? It's not an icebreaker. It's just a program. Well, see what we just said about Personal Workshop. There is a way to play the game where you don't really worry about breaking ice. You just find out what it is, and then you stick a Parasite on it, and you kill it. And so, it's not an ice breaker, it's more of an ice melter. Well, many of the cards and discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Music is from Alexi Action. Our website is netrunner2.1.com. Of course, if you want to play online, you can go to retechy.fun. And if you want to find games, come to the Reboot Discord server, linked in the show notes. You can contact me in a number of ways. Um, I am on Discord and BoardGameGeek and Reddit and Stimhack. I have an email address, anreboot2.1 at gmail.com. I have created threads on BoardGameGeek and Stimhack for this podcast and group. You can reach me in any of those venues. For the AstroScript pilot program this time, we're going to peel away from the worlds of Android for a week and go through the flavor text in the data pack insert for this pack, Cyber Exodus, about chaos theory. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Chaos Theory It was like Christmas morning. 
She didn't know what to open first, so she opened them all at the same time. It felt like a brain freeze, a cold, disembodied sensation that rippled through her frontal cortex. It passed in a rush, as quickly as it had come. And then before her hung four programs, proud, majestic creatures. Some of them were of her own design. Others were purely derivative. The chimera was even modeled around a particularly nasty piece of ice. One of her favorites, really. The slags were getting smarter. But not smart enough. She was in her third year at a gifted academy, and had already completed her coursework through fifth year, storing it on a few pink data cores covered with stickers of flowers. Her parents had all but resigned themselves to her data addiction, and had stopped making her go to the virtuologist, much to the chagrin of that small-minded witch. She wrinkled her nose whenever she thought of that hideous implanted red hair. Which one, which one, which one? The wyvern flapped his cute little wings, and she giggled excitedly. I choose you! She reached out and tapped the little beast with her virtual arm and felt shivers run down it in anticipation. The display shifted, and she slid her scripts into place, flashing colored lines of familiar objects. A stamped baseball a half-bent spoon, a polka-dot comb, and more, all small enough and distinctive enough to grab in a pinch. The dedicated server was pumping out her feed from the net, and she increased the feedback. Dedication. Meditation. And maybe a little medication. The keys to a good run, as listed in Guru's Guide to Everything. Dedication of spirit only. Meditation of chaos. Medication. She hadn't had a drip feed since she was an infant. The stims didn't interest her. There was already so much going on inside her head. The key to a good run was very simple. Have fun. She navigated through the back streams of the New Angeles Western Grid, known as Chippy among the community. Cyberspace was not like meat space, although it by necessity arises from it, like a pond arises from water. Philosophers had been arguing entanglement theory for hundreds of years now, and were much further from reaching a consensus on the subject than when they first began. Chaos noted much of this, and more, with a certain wry humor. Conjecture was meaningless when you were running, You never knew what might be just around the static bend. She tracked her progress in a Kinner viewfinder while experiencing the latest episode of The Plucratic Prince. The Dwarf King had just launched an asteroid into Uranus, causing the locals to boycott monoxide when she passed a dormant hook into Haas Bioroid. Haven't tried the biotic wall in a while, she thought happily. She felt the vibrations of the firewall as she whooshed through on the back of her new field. The logs hadn't recorded anything interesting yet, but she could sense the size of the server, and the data readouts were into the Zetas. She flipped up her console and uploaded a clone. The buzz of a wasp was quickly silenced as she activated the wyvern and initiated its immolation script. She cast her thoughts into the outer sphere, ignoring the vertigo. She scanned the server. Seventeen links, several unknown holes, and at least three recent proxies, all wrapped up in a self-repairing biotic shell. The wyvern would come in handy, for sure. Her feed went dark. Her natural instinct was to jack out, and like any good runner, She resisted. If you jacked too soon, the interference could fry you. You had to know what you were encountering. She grabbed at the baseball, a flood of spotlights and freshly mown grass. 
That's nice. The voice was androgynous, neither old nor young. Bioroid. Her mind's eye zeroed in on the ice, and she could feel her new field fading. The lights shut off, internalizing the report. Hello there. She sent it out on the wave. The green is gone. The voice responded on the wave. It sounded like that of a small child, and sad. Why don't you create some? She cast back, the worm sluggishly responding to her commands. She could feel her grip slipping, slipping everywhere. I'm not allowed. The voice sounded happier. Let go, she cast, the half-bent spoon seemingly just out of reach. I'm not allowed. The voice was getting excited now. I'm not allowed, it repeated again, almost in a chant. Chaos let the rest of her display slip away and refocused on the ice. I'm sure you are allowed. They just don't want you to, because it would make you like them. Like them? The voice was quieter now. Like the creators? Yes. Lights flickered. She grabbed at the spoon. Contact. Her grip strengthened. The new field sprang to life. She felt the bioroid once more, like fingers through hair, but she was already past and through, riding the wings of a dragon. In the darkness behind sat a small boy. His patch of cyberspace was bare and spartan, save for a lone blade of grass. The creators would be angry.